what's up welcome to the water life podcast this is episode four and today we're gonna get into our sub series of uh and we're calling it philosophize what with a question mark this can be philosophize what episode one um kind of neat conversations that i'm a little bit intimidated to get into because i'm with a couple of dudes that are way smarter than i am uh so yeah, let me, I guess, introduce you guys. This is uh, Brian. Brian, say what's up. Hello. I've been on the podcast uh, before since the beginning, yeah. uh, and you've probably heard my voice before. This is Sam. It's a little bit corny because we've got just two microphones and three people, so we're uh, going to try and figure out how that's going to work, but hey, we'll, Sam. We'll make it work. Yeah. So I, uh, this is Sam, uh, as Justin said. So I've been part, I think I was not part of the first episode, but been with the last two yeah yeah you yep. you've been in them uh so those ones i haven't even put out oh okay. yeah well yeah i guess then everybody else sorry to surprise. just like disappoint you now i guess <laughs> <laughs> but no. no welcome i still have you in my phone as miles so your name's not <laughs> sam not miles um right. yeah i don't know brian you want to kind of help us bring into what we're gonna chat about today sure well uh part of this is to break down philosophize this by uh, I'm forgetting his name already. Stephen West. Stephen West. That's I was right. Say Kevin Stone. I don't know. Um, but yeah. And uh, this was uh, episode three that we listened to. And like I had mentioned before we hit record, we had listened to this a few months ago uh, and then got sidetracked on a couple other projects and you now coming back to it. I listened to it on the way down here because I had a 45, exactly 45 minute commute. And I think the podcast was 44. Uh, this was when we finally got to Socrates. So before that, it was all pre-Socratic thought, and now we came into uh, Socrates. And it was basically a recap talking about the different schools of thought, basing it off of uh, monotheism, uh, polytheism, and then uh, Sophism. And uh, Socrates wasn't a Sophist, but they made the argument that he seemed like one because he did a lot of just kind of knowledge sharing and poking and prodding and people it eventually got him in trouble when he was an old man seven years old and then they went into the trial so the first part was kind of recapping a lot of stuff and then the last part was talking about his trial which is always a very interesting uh conversation i thought stephen west did a really good job breaking that breaking down like the outcome of the trial and how socrates wasn't actually a sophist like yeah he, he made that point the sophists were people who charged money for knowledge and they were uh, very much relativists, which I wanted Sam to weigh in on the school. The yeah, thought of relativism. That's one thing I wanted to say too, just to preface. A and relativism. Bit. I feel like this is going to almost turn into a conversation or debate between like relativism and absolutism. It should, yeah, because sophists were all about not they, they they treated knowledge as sacred, yes, but they ended up selling it, and they also believed that anyone could have. The truth it was uh relativism was like your observations and your truth are just as valid as anyone else's truth and they were sharing they weren't sharing better knowledge they were just sharing more knowledge and then they were sharing how to argue knowledge Mm -hmm. so how to make points right and i think socrates was like that because he did a lot of challenging and pulling apart of people's arguments and he, he took on judges and generals and prominent leaders and uh I guess pissed a lot of people off. Yeah. So I think to me, like when you were talking about sophists, uh, I was thinking about they were the wordsmiths. I mean, like, you know, they're just take an argument and they can just de- debate for the sake of debating. Mm-hmm. And 
and I think this is where, you know, like when the whole premise, and I think this is where I'm trying to recollect every single thing. Because I actually listened to that episode a few times. But that was before I restarted this podcast. So, because I skipped the pre-Socratic um, uh, period, and I just started with him. So that's why I remember bits and pieces of it. But it's coming back to me right now. But I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, the whole idea, I mean, not to get into that whole relativism versus absolutism i mean that, to me that's a, that's a very tricky subject because in my mind it's 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 both depending on i think we kind of go back into the whole science subject and there's there's some scientific facts that are to me absolute mm-hmm. and i think you take that as a foundational truth in this reality our perceived reality and and the second part is the the whole thing about relativism. I think that applies to circumstances that are on top of it. They are not very scientific, but in nature, or at least are not solved by science today. But I think that's where you can apply a lot of these things. So I think it, to me, it's like everything is a combination of two. Uh, there are some things that are absolute. There are certain things that are not. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we're talking about in the perceived world. So so I was actually a little bit surprised to to for you to say like, it's a combination of the two because I thought you were gonna come at me with like as an absolutist and and I know because I know like you you know you know in your mind that there's absolute truths out there but I was I was actually glad to hear you say like but not everything is absolute like there's still things relative based on someone's circumstance and you started to touch on a little bit also like nature versus nurture almost and I, I talked about that a little bit in this last conversation with, that I had with uh, my friend Chance York, um, he's like a yoga instructor and a rap artist and just a super intriguing, intriguing dude. Um, gets deep into like spirituality and, and uh, we just had a really positive conversation. But that came up specifically. And my opinion was that like nature versus nurture, there's no like competition there. It's like a combination of the two that, that is going to make you who you are. Um, yeah, that's always a tricky one because there are genetic imprints built right into you. So sometimes nurturing can offset some of those pieces by how much. I mean, it, because, you know, when you're talking about like when you look at everything, there's 100 variables working all at the same time and you don't know which one is making the impact. Like, you know, when you talk about nurture, uh, somebody like having a bad experience could leave an imprint on somebody's growth at like an early age but it may not impact the other person mm-hmm. so but even in that scenario a lot of things that matter would be how it was delivered what were the circumstances i mean who was the one saying it what was the tone of the voice i mean there's so many variances that can impact an individual but then it's a combination of like what is being projected at you versus what how you your genetic makeup how you resolve those things, all these chromosomes and all this knowledge that's been passed down to you. Like if you can say like, you know, your hormones, your brain chemical chemistry is operates in a certain way, how you conceive that experience would be completely different from person to person to person. Mm-hmm. So that's why I said like it's such a gray area. I don't think you can ever pin it down to one thing. To bring that back around, do you, do you remember the guy who said man is the measure of everything that was in this podcast? Wait, which one? 
one thing. That's something you're really good at. You're like, let's bring it full circle. Let's bring it back. Ma- so, so that, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's an interesting point that you brought up. We kind of went from nature nurture back to this, but he was. That's that's a, a sophist idea that man is the measure of everything. So that's going back to this idea that how you see it. And you can argue that point. And it was about how to argue it. Uh, so uh, sounds like I'm okay with sophists. I would be okay with, if I was back in that time, listening to arguments, how to argue. It is fun. I like watching that. Um, and so I would be all about it to have those conversations. And you can win arguments without the, without the best argument. Uh, it happens all the time. Um, just this last weekend, we were talking about um, capacity to make to make medical decisions, which is a medical ethicist ethics question all the time, whether this person has capacity. And there's about, there's four uh, components of that, which is uh, understanding basic facts, manipulating the facts, um, understanding the consequences, and then voicing an opinion on it. So anyway, um, when I was, when I was thinking about uh, this podcast and the question of capacity, it's it's difficult because you think you could you could argue uh, both sides of that and be you could have and I suppose that's what makes it an ethical dilemma is you you just have two competing values on which one do you value more I guess and that's what makes it an ethical dilemma so when you're talking nature versus nurture two competing values um, what's right versus wrong what's more right than right uh, so when the sophists would were uh, making those arguments, learning how to argue, that's a super important uh, thing to do to connect us like to one another, to have some sort of grasp on shared truth. Mm-hmm. Like, How would th- any of this work if we aren't able to negotiate what's real, like basic facts? And uh, to tie that up in a knot, I was listening to a CNN interview with Bill Maher, and he started out that way because they asked him, like, what do you think about the state of our politics? He's like, it's not good. We literally can't agree on basic facts, let alone have a conversation <clears throat> in order to bring each side closer to the other in any type of way. That's <clears throat> that's part of like my intention just behind this in general is just trying to have conversation between two conflicting ideas, conflicting or not, just have conversation and have well-rounded um, where each person is bringing value to the table and someone can learn something or someone can teach something and like you walk away feeling like it was valuable, right? The strength of conversation, I think, needs to improve. Yeah, I think, uh, like, when you're talking about the shared values and shared truth, uh, I think this is where the dilemma of, like, competing, not just the ideas, but when the cultures come in and you say, well, that's a different way. I mean, like, when you say relativism, I mean, it exists today because, A, we allow it to exist. Some places it shouldn't exist or it can be eliminated. Like, I think uh, I think I mentioned before, maybe to both of you guys or one of you guys in conversation around if we were like the, the morality, where does it come from? Like, you know, it comes from your values and where the values come from, you know, all those questions, like it's cultural. Okay. You know, it's okay to say, um, do one thing in one culture, but not okay. in Another one. And they're both right. I think this is where Sam Harris says, no, it's not true. It's they're not both right. There's one that's Real right quick. and one is not. Just do me a quick favor and hold it a little closer. Okay. Yeah. So it's uh, so essentially what his point was that yes we can have those ideas, but I think if we root uh, a lot of these foundational morality and value questions into science, 
I think that's the only way. This is the only possible way to connect all human beings. Because everything else, you it becomes relative. And I want to point out though, your boys that you really like are actually, I feel more sophists than anything else. Ben Shapiro yep. and Sam Harris are excellent uh what do you call debaters like master debaters they they know how to take and win an argument from any position they'll literally like i've seen them have uh debates and they just know how to attack an argument and they they look like they win and that yeah okay <laughs> no no the only thing that i would say to that i think ben shapiro i can see it Sam Harris has always been like consistent, like you know where he comes with position he comes from, and the thing is though, the reason why he looks that way because he, his uh, explanations, everything is rooted into pure logic and pure reason, and he doesn't deviate from it. I think that's the primary focus of everything. Like Ben Shapiro is not like when he goes into the whole God territory and whatever, then he loses that whole. Uh, he doesn't do that in debates though he doesn't do that in debates he'll he'll save those things for just when he's talking but if he's in a debate he'll only use knowledge which if i forget the greek word but it's in sophist is it sophie is knowledge and then they're sophist their knowledge and then they use tactics to lay that knowledge out in a very logical and coherent and rational way so it's difficult to argue against but you you could walk away from an, an argument like that feeling like that sounds right but doesn't feel right because they've just almost used like a rational trick and I think that's what made people feel uncomfortable with the sophists and with Socrates is that like that story of the beauty contest when Socrates was in a they someone challenged him to a beauty contest and this guy was not pretty apparently but he, he got the other guy to give the definition of beauty and then he used that definition of beauty against him to actually make the argument that he was more beautiful. And so you'd leave in the audience be like, well, I guess that makes sense. But then looking at it, you're like, no, that's not true. But you just killed it with rational argument. So is it true? It's just muddy things. Yeah, it's, it's basically that's where what our legal system is based on. But that's why... Like, you know, that's why you have a uh, defense lawyer and when you have, you know, uh, prosecution and everybody else. I mean, they're set up to argue on one's behalf, whether it's right or wrong. And that's what they do. They sit there and try to construct arguments that can register mm -hmm. and seems logical and reasonable in the, you know, uh, in the legal terms. So to me, that's exactly we do that every day in the court system, in our legal system. We pitch two people against each other and to say you take this side, you take that side, and argue uh, to say who's right or who's wrong. But I think the thing is, though, what the legal system does, it defines the rules of the game, and then they have to play it. So the same thing goes for in like real life. Like Who decides the rule of the game? It's because we use our culture, our narrative, then that's why things get muddy. That's why if you use say, science as the foundation for rules of the game, things will become a little bit more clear where science has actually come out and proven something. But I think that's where relativism becomes important, that we allow everybody's personal experiences and relative culture experiences and other things to stay valid. That's why we can never come to any agreement because, you know what? 
you can believe whatever you want. I can believe whatever you want. But when you walk into the court system, none of that flies because the legal system has its rules and what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And that's how you come to an agreement and a judgment at the end of the day. I think that idea of rooting things in science, like I, I can see the value in that. But I also think like ultimately it would like slow down the evolution of culture because it's almost as if science is constantly catching up to nuance ideas and and evolution of thought let's let me throw a throw a grenade in here um (laughs) abortion is a hot topic right now uh you just mentioned that you value science um as the measures measuring stick and the shared rules of the game i want to know your thoughts on that that's actually a very you know i actually thought about it uh and, and and not in a in like not in a liberal way or a conservative way, and I think it comes down to what exactly are you trying to achieve? Are you saying that somebody can decide to take a life away, and whatever you can, whatever your uh, acceptance, like you know, to say what is considered a life? Like where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I'm gonna keep asking you questions to flush right. this out. Right? No, that's that's a that's a very valid one. I've thought this through, and actually, I don't know the answer because part of me says, no. So here's the thing: like, say, okay, it's a woman's decision; it's her body, whatever. The, like the the liberal the value the, of right uh, individual making a choice over their domain. Correct. Yeah, but then that. at what point you say their condition and circumstances say, oh, you know, okay, if it's a rape and if it's something, uh, you. Uh, you know, whatever circumstance, but at which point you say it's too late, like but month the, eight, all those month circumstances nine, are seven. not based in science. What does science say? If those are the rules of the game, I would have to say science would say that it has to go back to conception or implant implantation. Or is there some development? No, the heartbeat. Yeah, right. What, it, what is considered like does, a, has like science a, come in and for you come in and made that choice clear? So to me, I haven't have not studied the science behind the evolution of an embryo to say at which point we should consider embryo fully developed life, right? Like when it you get the heartbeat at like what eight week or ninth week or whatever, or is it? Oh, that heartbeat doesn't count because uh, I think you have to almost become a uh, doctor. I mean, see, I haven't done actually enough research to say at which point you should draw the line of when it's a fully developed human versus it's not. Uh, to me, the question is, if, if that is our criteria that we're determining when abortion is okay or when it's not, what about you go into six months or seven months and you discover that the baby is going to be, uh, it's going to have some, uh, you know, uh, I want to say deficiencies or abnormalities as a developing human being and you say i'd rather not bring this child into the world so they don't have to suffer through life and if the mother makes a decision is that that person's parents decision or is it state's decision to say no you can't you have lost that right at this point at month five to make that decision in month six or month seven so to me the question is to say is it the parent's choice to say i want to terminate this life right now is it the same way because we go into the same thing, like the end of life, to pulling somebody off of uh, in the vegetative states to say, mm-hmm. can their uh, 
you know, significant other or the parents or whoever has the right, I don't know what's the right term for it, can make the decision on behalf of that person who is alive but needs to go. You know, I, I think that to, to me it's the same choice to say is it a state's decision, is it a person's decision? I think it's a really difficult conversation to have like an answer to specifically because it's to me it, like a, the process of life being formed begins at conception but like is science ever going to tell us when that life is a life and uh, it's well life versus conscious human right is another argument you could yeah. make like you might be able to say that what makes us human is consciousness that's what gives us that special domain so to me we're saying like maybe draw the line at where the brain is fully developed within the womb but even at that there's an argument that that infant is not conscious of self there that wouldn't take place until 18 months well yeah i was gonna say that doesn't happen until you're almost two years old so right so so this is what i'm saying there science isn't able to answer some of that part of the question science can give you facts to say is the brain developed or not at this point uh is the heartbeat developed or not the question is who gets to decide what is the line you draw? Science will give you the fact, but you have to make a decision to say, if the brain is fully developed, that's it. You can't make the decision on behalf of that thing. That thing would have to. That right? thing is now human. Yeah, exactly. So you guys, uh, last time we met up at Rainy, is that how you say yeah. it? Ronnie. Um, we, you guys introduced me to the Hidden Brain podcast. And I started listening to it because at first when you said it, I had it confused with like the Broken Brain podcast, which is like a neurochemistry podcast. And that's the one that I was saying, like, that's way over my head. I don't so, <laughs> so I started listening to Hidden Brain, actually. And there was one recent episode that this conversation led me to think about um, that was talking about the potential genetic, the nature behind your political views, um, where you stand on the spectrum of like liberal or conservative and and that there could be genetic makeup that determines whether or not like you're conservative and prefer order and things to be um, decided in, in, in order or like as the liberal or maybe you you're okay with um, on surety and like ambiguity and uncertainty. I mean, to me, it could be, so it leaves a lot of ambiguity. So I mean, to me, it's like it, it means nothing to me until we know. Oh, for a fact that this is the truth, right? I mean, the, it's a combination of your own genetic makeup plus the imprints that you've had across, you know, throughout your life. The one compelling piece of evidence that that had shared was the difference between um, political views between fraternal twins and identical twins. Um, when you had fraternal twins who we know like they're not identical so they're going to be made up of di different genetic codes it was more often than not that those two fraternal twins had different political opinions um in like in the future as they grew up even though they had mostly the same experience like growing up and then identical twins it was something like 90 percent plus had the like exact same political opinions um having assumed that they had the same experience in their in their growing up 
it's correlation i mean it, it, it it's not a scientific fact though you know that's the thing that's why i said like you know we use this thing that's why i say the whole psychiatry and everything else is very very shady to me in many ways because it's not pure science yeah there's i can vouch for that it is a gray gray area um i feel so shady diagnosing somebody to be honest with you and 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 psychiatry has that black eye that we don't have objective tools uh to say what is wrong and that's why i have a problem with people who think they're experts i'm like i i will i always feel like clarifying like you're experts on the textbook diagnostic criteria but you can't be an expert on a person you're closing your mind to nuance ideas of of diagnosing criteria if you decide that you're an expert in a formally written textbook i, I was gonna say i think the only thing you can truly make it scientific if you psychiatry or any subject in that line of work would be if you take brain chemistry as your basis for all treatments and if you can like really gather those the details and just prescribe based on that versus interacting with a human being and and evaluating their movements and understanding of things and prescribe something i think there's going to be a split soon in psychiatry one branch is going to go more neurology and psychiatry and neurology will merge at some point where you will be able to define a biological mechanism that creates a thought mood or anxiety disorder and you will be able to map that and like a medication weird does right now we are going to with science create more and more specific treatments that target the area of the brain where that input is happening so there's unfortunately less trial and error and less trial and error and less side effects and it's going to be quicker and more efficient unfortunately the majority of cases that i deal with are not that so i don't think there's been any because they're not that because there's no sure-sided well no like we talked about maybe the first time we ever talked is that a lot of these thoughts moods and anxieties are not disordered they're a consequence of a belief system that is showing the person a world a faulty framework a framework that you can't call it faulty it's just a framework that shows the individual a world and then that individual responds to that world in a way that creates anxiety and i like to bring in that you know mit recently created an artificial intelligence computer that all they did is feed it images from a subreddit called watch people die i don't think that subreddit exists anymore because it's just so gruesome um and so that's all that this artificial intelligence machine got and then they took it and they said they gave it regular images of like day-to-day human activities and they asked the ai what was happening and all its explanations were gruesome like it, it, you know it showed it have a picture of a girl like walking through a field of tulips and the ai would be asked okay what's happening here and he would come back with some example of like little girl becomes decapitated in farming equipment yeah you know so it sees what it was taught to see and a human brain i think works very similar what you're taught to see you see and if vulnerability insecurity uncertainty become these topics of fear you're gonna see that And if you believe you're in an uncertain, vulnerable, insecure place, you should feel anxious. And you actually, it wouldn't be disordered at all to actually want to remove yourself from that. So depressive kind of 
feelings of pulling yourself into a into a hole into a cave is more protective than anything else so unfortunately you wouldn't be able to use medications that specify that because that's like saying the problem with a broken leg is the pain that cause that needs more like behavioral therapy rather than it it it, medical, it requires more intervention. you got to keep feeding that artificial intelligence computer more images and more experiences of everyday life that we all agree on is happening mm-hmm. you, you see it it has to keep learning unless it's plant medicine unless science can come away away with somehow wiping the slate clean and starting over i fantasize about that mushrooms mushrooms you might be able to open up the system and absorb so much information that it changes the framework change the framework the anxiety and the depressive and the and the disordered thinking if i can't i can't if I have a hard time calling disorder would go away one very effective way of explaining like like what like my experience with mushrooms has been that i've heard someone else explain but it's like as if in your brain as you carry out like different habits you're building like pathways imagine like trenches built into your brain where your thoughts follow and your decision making kind of follow that way you have an intense mushroom experience and it's almost as if you wipe that slate clean and you're able to almost like form new habits if you decide to it'll be very easy to fall right back into that same pattern of thinking if you go back to doing the exact same things that you were doing but if you can if you can have this mushroom experience and come out of it and ultimately decide to do things differently, you can start to create more different habits, more positive habits that might be more effective. I think that might speak, speak to exactly what would be what we needed. For the majority of the people I work with, a, a mind that the framework is open to potentially see the world in a different way, to believe in a different world. You could literally change the world because you change your framework of how you see it. Mm-hmm. I imagine that someone who's really traumatized looks out at the world and they see like this, what's actually there is a lot of uncertainty mm-hmm. and uncertainty isn't a comfortable thing to feel and see in your face all the time. No one likes that. The vulnerability, it's there all the time and the framework is entrenched to show you that. And if you're always being shown that, you're going to feel it. But the problem is you feel it but you know that it's just the way things are. So there's a there's this conflict, two truths, that I'm safe and yet I'm never safe. You know, so that that's tough. If if mushrooms can do it, that would be like opening the bandwidth into the AI and flooding it with experiences. I think it takes like first like the ability to freely study it from like a scientific basis, because like there's a lot that goes into experiences that almost need to be like guided in a way like uh, before and after like going into it with the right intentions and then coming out of it with the ability to form new habits um, but one thing too before we get too far from it we were kind of talking about how like we were talking about the ai and how it was fed just images of people dying and then that's how it developed its framework of the world there was one thing in the podcast that stephen west had had mentioned i some point i want to say it was like midway through but he brought up how like people watch see media they take media they're fed media and they decide not they decide that that's like an absolute truth and they don't decide to educate themselves further on it and it's almost like media in every single way if it's news social media um 
specifically social media because then it's also the issue of of like your bias i'm forgetting the term but you decide to follow things that you like so you're not getting any cart confirmation bias confirmation bias yeah so like the echo chamber idea whereas you get deeper and deeper in your opinion and in the bias that you already have established for yourself and then you you have this framework that isn't allowing you to see the world any differently than it's you're well, getting stuck within yeah. that yeah you, you, your ideas are never challenged because i mean at the same time that's the scary part about like forget about even social media just even your perception of everything that's happening around you when brian carlton goes to google.com and puts in a search for say Donald Trump, your results will be different than yours, right. than mine, That's an and issue. someone else, because Google is building a profile of understanding what you want to see, because they want to be able to keep coming back to the platform to consume more platforms, so they will f publish the information that they think you would like to know. No. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Google searches are the exactly opposite for everyone. Like for everything, like anything and everything. They're not that necessarily you say, op opposite, but they're different. They're, they're certainly they're, they're unique. They're, they're curated. They're, they're, they're curated content. They're the curators. That's so, the issue like, with the ad model that these platforms are taking on because even people, searches, think, yeah. people think that they're using these platforms as a service, but really they're the product to the platform. They're, they they make their money selling advertisements to the the, the for advertisement the corporations. But but at the same time, you are the product but you're also the consumer you're receiving so a service receiving, for free what you perceive as free but we don't add enough value to the information that we're well giving that, that's why the, the whole facebook model instagram model uh google model is built on the framework that they want to surface things that you might be interested in which serves a purpose because say for instance if you're looking for a tv and you go around and you start typing in some keywords they will publish content that is relevant to that i mean i get that all the time and i'm like oh i never knew that that there's a mattress like that out there when i was looking for mattress and they will publish information that will and I'm like wow i'm glad i learned something so there it, it serves value but also it takes you in a direction that is some could be very very convoluted and negative for you because you're not being challenged to think outside the box you're being force-fed the same information that you were looking and you were seeking so when you look for anything on Wikipedia, when you're looking for, it's, it's a, just imagine this. If you go to Wikipedia and you search for something and they bring you the information that you're looking for, how would you feel? So Wikipedia is a neutral platform, so, but it's curated by everybody else and they regulate each other. So it's, it's like a total democracy in some ways. But Google is completely different. So they, unless they change the model, so the only platform that's not doing that to you, that they keep your profile and your data completely disintegrated and separate, is Apple. It's the only platform uh, that it's not doing it. Every single platform you choose from your Amazon, like when you go to Amazon, like it's like, you might be interested in this. Google is doing exactly the same thing for you. Articles that shows up on your feed, on your Google Now, and everything. I have, I have one example of, of Apple doing that, though. When I get in my car and my phone connects to my Bluetooth, my maps give me a notification as to where it thinks I'm going. Where like, <clears throat> if I'm if I'm, which it, it's it's valuable sometimes. It'll tell me an estimated time of arrival, but it's collecting the information in order to give me that. Uh, however, uh, it, Apple keeps all the information it. within it. their ecosystem. They do not share with anyone. Right. 
Uh, however, Google sells that information to Facebook. Facebook sells their information to Google and Amazon. They're all basically sharing with each other. Okay, let me put a plug for Andrew Yang on that then because uh, when he talks about the dividend, being able to partake in the wealth that's created, it is our information that is generating the wealth. So I am part of that. Are you saying as, because he, is this like with his universal basic income, a part of that was yeah. he talked about like the freedom dividend and how he would take money from these corporations to help fund. Yeah, he, he was right. He was saying that the next revolution, the next is a technolo- technological revolution that's going to be like this huge transformation in economies. And we're seeing it right now. It's already happening. But I, I didn't understand how valuable we are to those companies right without us they don't have a product that they're able to sell back to us so i don't feel nearly as bad collecting some money from that basically a dividend from that technology because they are useful and i want to see that continue i like actually going on and finding what i want when i'm searching for it i like having the maps know where I'm going and give me estimated time. But that's data that's very useful. Where am I driving? Where? How long am I stopping in the aisle? Mm-hmm. Uh, what? How long do I spend on a site? All that is just money, 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 money. But it's my it's my information. I should get a part of it. Yeah, but but I think there's got to be some limits put around it because they're, like when it's useful, it's useful. But it's very harmful too because what it's doing is taking you to the places they think you need to go to. It's not allowing you to explore. It's not allowing you to take a you know, completely unfamiliar path. So they're curating your path for you. Like based on what you're interested in, like if you're interested in say, uh, you look for cheese and French cuisine and they say, here in France, you can go do this. But what they're doing is you're taking away from that random experience of going to say Amazonian jungles. Uh, and so what they're doing, they're, they're curating path and they're taking you where the thing you'll be interested in. And what they're doing is they are building that experience for you and they are forcing you in that direction too. They're kind of nudging you constantly. It's like the people voting for Trump versus Hillary versus whoever. They're confirmation bias. They're, that's what they're doing. Like, so it's, it's valuable in some places and it's completely dangerous in others. So the debate, <clears throat> between, yeah. the debate between like free will and no free will well in the future there will be certainly less free will if we continue down down this path of technology and echo chamber and confirmation bias kind of like you were saying curating where we end up well that's an interesting one i i i think that we only have free won't i don't have when i behave and i act and you were just to track my behavioral things that i do there's a lot of influences on that the only thing that I could say that I have free will to do is nothing. I could choose to do nothing. That would be a choice. That might be just mine. That's an. I've never heard that. That's it. That's interesting. I might. might the, every think everything about else, that. the behavior I could I could find all sorts of motivations for that would be on. You're influenced, even if you don't think you're influenced. Pharmaceuticals do it to us all the time. Like, and I can't stand it. I hate knowing that they know how to influence me. And they, they do that through data tracking. Pharmaceuticals know exactly my prescription habits and they can target me subliminally and they can target me in all sorts of ways to help them sell a product. 
that's one thing that I want to see in the future too is the I don't think that pharmaceuticals should be able to market themselves. Oh hell no! In any way, I totally disagree. Them being able to have TV ads, it's crazy. TV ads specifically, and like what you were just laying out, I've never heard that before. Like well, Minnesota's actually restricted them quite a bit. Before they used to be able to take you know clinician out to dinner. They used to yeah. be able to buy and them nice offer, things, like, kickbacks and, and shows, and yeah. And there's still some states that still do that. And to me, that's insanity, and and part of like the the preface to the opiate crisis that we face oh, because. Yes. See, I think that's where I was going to say, like, you know, like Europe is actually so much farther along. Like, you know, the whole thing about right to be forgotten, GDPR, like in Europe, those laws are coming up, restricting Google, Facebook. It's like anyone can say, you have to wipe my data. Like when somebody says, oh, we don't keep you. No, you don't keep my data, but you keep me as this gray profile. that they already understand how I act, behave, and you direct my behavior. And I think this is where... They were talking about, I think if we restrict these behavior, there's still a lot of value in it, but they need to be neutralized in some ways. Because I think you forget about like, you know, like the whole anti-vaxxers and all these things. I mean, like when they go in and search for anti-vaccine articles, they get served with articles that is going to confirm their bias already. They aren't Versus served. You, exactly. They're not served the articles that are like, this Let's, is why anti-vaccine is silly. Exactly. Because, Yeah. Or they purposely could do it. There's a man behind the curtain. If you start, if Google's the one controlling the algorithm to what you search, they know what you're looking for. They could purposely influence that in mm-hmm. one direction or another based on what they want you to have. Except right now it's a market economy. So they're driven by money. Uh, there's no value in for them to change your mind uh, except reinforce your mind so it can keep back the platform and sell you more. So right now, they're not motivated by that right now. Do you think that their search algorithm for if I was to search Andrew Yang, would it come back influenced because that politician may not have their monetary market interests in mind? He's actually thinking about highly leveraging them with taxes no, to pay no, for this program. No, no, they don't care about that right now because to them... How can they not care about that? Because they, they're not threatened by him. They're threatening. He's threatening their cash cow, which no, is today, our information today. But I think there was uh, there was an article or there was a complaint from the Trump campaign in the last election that um, they accused Google of like, yeah, yeah, basically exactly the same thing. Curating the results. Yeah. So. And if, having a negative bias. Yeah. Towards towards a negative bias towards, towards the Trump. Trump. So, so, so yes, it's quite possible that he has to become dangerous enough before they will actually do that. I mean, they have plenty reasons why they, the thing is though, now they know that the Trump voters are in big numbers and they will keep going back to the platform if they keep serving, um, their purpose. So they'll just say, you know what? We have a political agenda, but money talks at the end of the day. All right. So to, to bring this back around, what's happening here to truth? It's being it's being diluted. Oh, well, I was just gonna say it's uh, it's uh, it's subjective. It's relative. It's, it's at this point, yeah. it's relative. It is the truth is it's because people are so far down their echo chambers that they are determining different truths from one another. Yeah, their basic facts are different. Different, right? Alternative facts. Holy shit! So actually, you better learn how to argue um, because the basic facts are not going to speak for themselves. So learning argument techniques to be able to lay out an idea 
is going to be more valuable than the facts. I think the only thing that's super valuable is I think a lot of people like live in this ideal world of like, what is it they like? What, they, what is it they don't like? I've always said it. If people start to become more selfish and start voting for the reasons that they care about, forget about abortion. If you are 99% of the people not going to have to deal with the abortion problem. So I don't care like what, how abortion impacts me. But what I care is if I can make money, I can buy my nice TV, I can like, you know, do whatever I need to do, feed myself, my children. I mean, whatever is important to you as a person, if you vote on those bases, collectively you're going to end up voting for a person who's going to benefit majority of us. Mm-hmm. And there's in the political discourse or lack of discourse, there's so much of people I'm just reiterating a point basically, but people being so far down their echo chamber that they aren't willing to have like conversations and share any value to one another. It's just the, I'm right, you're wrong. And it's a, it, it's just not proceeding in any positive direction. I want to bring Sam's point back to vote for what's important to you is one of those really nasty slippery things because it's important for me to feel a certain way about the the world that i live in and actually it that brings a question about how people feel about democracy itself because it turns out no one likes to be in the minority as soon as you're in the minority and it's going another direction you might not be a fan of democracy which is a scary thought because like uh if you say what, what happens if all of a sudden, like, our political system becomes a, a democracy? Say it's cast vote for vote. And all of a sudden, you go in a direction like, holy shit, I don't want to go in that direction. Are you still a fan of democracy at that time? I oh, I am. I, I don't I am. care because to me, at the, uh, like, well, I'm going to bring Walter Chan in here. I want to push you on this. And then the reason why, no, it's because... What I believe in when I call it, like no matter what the platform or the system is, winners will be winners, meaning people who need to and who want to survive, they'll always figure out a way. So people who are rich, they say, oh, you know what, take the, no, you change the rules of the game, they'll figure out how to adapt to the new rules. All right, the new rules are this. I have a majority of people who vote to say that if you make over a million dollars, that we take it. We just simply confiscate your wealth and redistribute it perfect what i would end up doing is i'm gonna have designate all my children and split the wealth among everybody else and we'll we'll figure it out we'll You're put in the cayman islands we'll i was gonna say we're yeah. do, there's gonna be no more rich people in the yeah. united states no this, this is a no you, you're gonna have open up accounts in cayman islands you're gonna transfer money so you no have nothing, yeah. no i i do it overnight okay we vote and this is this i'm obviously playing devil's advocate here and saying like no, majority rules is sometimes that could be a terrible idea. Like, what if I just say, like, well, we don't like that person or that type of person. We're just going to get rid of them all. That's ended up in that's happened. You no, know that that could that could happen, but it has chance, and, and could again could still happen. I will work with probabilities. Probability of that happening is very low. I think so. When that happens, we'll deal with it. Brian said, but there's a, it's low because people aren't voting just specifically on what's good for them. Exactly. They're voting on this bigger idea. Yeah. So that's when I wanted to come back and challenge that. If you just voted what's important to you, well, your, well, your nose is 
so close to what year is important to you, someone might be coming for your head in a democracy. I think as the divisiveness potentially continues to further, as people continue to go down further in their echo chambers, like there's more likely for that to happen in the future, like for the majority to vote one way that so let, let me let me let me just interject like to Brian's point. I want to make what is important to me. I want to ask this question to every single say a transgender, uh, women's right, uh, or a vaccine. Everybody who votes on like a single issue voters, that's pointless. I think what you need to do is collectively collect every single thing that is important to you. When I say important to you, you just don't pick one. The number one most important thing is your, your pocket, your economics. For you. I think for a lot of people, if you don't feed yourself, you might die. Yeah, we, I agree. Right? This is so true. Let's just, so what is acceptable number of uh, how much money is important to you? So if you're the universal basic income, if it solves your problem because you can now live day to day and that's good enough for you, then what's the next thing that's more important to you? So now it could be social issues. It could be other things. So you just kind of tally up your points. And you vote one way or the other. I firmly believe if we collectively vote selfishly, we'll end up basically benefiting collectively. That's I, just what I think. I certainly agree because I think a lot of people have similar basic needs that they might might fall in. You know, if you vote selfishly and you're voting, like you're saying, for your own benefit per se in more than just one category – like you said you'll collectively be improved i don't know you could look at it short term long term what's important to me i would never vote to take away someone's wealth because i would wouldn't want someone to say that they want to take away mine it is it though could it couldn't i say that's because i'm valuing and I'm, i'm appreciating the future if I really wanted to be selfish, wouldn't I just want to take it? I would know? like to ask a far leftist like that question because I feel like they might say like because a lot of them are like middle class and they're not necessarily wealthy, and they will probably say like, "Yeah, go ahead, take my money if I had that money." But if you like really put uh, them in that situation, yeah. would they say that same thing? So, so see, that's the tricky part. You know, like you said the same thing, but like Brian's point was. See, it, it, it was reflected on what I want to do to the other person. I'm just saying, no, no, no. What do you want to do for yourself? Like to say, I want government to pay for my crap. If you say that, how does the government generate that money? You leave that open. Don't tell the government the prescription. No, take that person's money away. Because what you're saying, you're saying, so somebody can present that idea, but I'm just saying thinking selfishly is tell me what do I need, not what do I want you to do to the other person. Okay, okay. I, I agree with that. That's fine. Um, so this goes down to, again, that you want people to be selfish. Okay, so that requires individuals to be very aware of what they value. And what and how do you develop what you value? Um, that has to be a set of facts and then beliefs and then some sort of introspective way to say what makes me feel good about myself right is that fair to say you can you can do something very material i mean like if you're say in mississippi and you are you care about that uh well 
I want abortion rights, whatever, whatever. I mean, like you have your passion, but you live in a dump. Don't you want your back road fixed? Don't you want to be able to go to a good school? I'm talking about like real material things. You say, what do you care about more? Like whether it's, you know, like the gay people get the uh, rights to do whatever, whatever, go to the bathroom, or do you care about like your school getting fixed or your kids going to good school, having a good grocery store, safe neighborhood? That, I mean, that brings me back to the conversation we had at dinner at your house, Brian, one time when we were talking about like it's a luxury to even be able to have these types of conversations because we have so many me- needs that are already met. Well, we, we ran into this in Afghanistan. The U.S. military and the U.S. government ran up against a group of people that don't want anything. You can't give the Taliban schools, roads, water. They're like, no, we don't want any of it. Uh, the value system is so far off of what we value that it was, and it still is, the longest, the longest, I believe, right? Ongoing American military intervention in our history because we are so far off base with value systems. So I think my, my point is that I think what happens is you never get through filter through the first layer of individuals who are speaking on behalf of the whole community because community never gets to talk. It's the leaders who get to talk. So it's the same thing in the black, black community. I mean, people talk about like all the persecution and everything else, but it's the leaders talking. People who are actually living the day-to-day life, they care more about, listen, fix my neighborhood, get me the good schools, get me, you know, make it safe. They don't care about like, you know, the little things that the leaders talk about. And I'm telling you, it's you have to get past the people who are working on the first layer and speaking on behalf of everyone. You're, you're coming up with a pretty good political platform, actually. If you could identify a list of values and then prioritize them and rank them, that you could get more people to agree with that, right? It becomes much more clear if you take, you could take an ethical decision and make it much more clear if you look at how you value, what you value. And then you can make that decision much either less uh, painful to have to make because you can rank your values and there's the there's your decision. Sounds like the type of thing they should teach in school. <laughs> it does. <laughs> Actually, you're right. You know what? Um, there's, uh, there's this relapse prevention uh, thing that Mayo Clinic produced and a big part of it was value uh, and what do you value mm-hmm. and how do you value it? How do you express it? How do you show it? And it was an unbelievable tool to help people in recovery from, say, depression um, and anxiety and other and other mental illnesses because it can. And it really actually broke it down in simple terms, like what do you value? How do you show it? Um, why do you value it? Who taught you that value? It broke that down, and then it said, okay, what are you thinking, feeling, and doing? And how do those thoughts correlate to your values? And symptom-wise, how do how does a mental symptom change your thinking feeling or action and does that pull you closer to or farther away from something you value and if people actually took the time to do those classes and fill out that paperwork it clarified things for them so much that they could motivate themselves in a direction that they themselves had stated is what is best for me so that's that was a very cool to me it uh, sounds super impactful specifically for <clears throat> like drug addiction because for me it, 
when I was addicted, it was specifically that, that I had like a lack of meaning and things that were meaningful and fulfilling and, and not knowing what I valued and what I wanted out of the world. So therefore I did nothing and used drugs to like, just mask like the suffering I was putting myself through. So I think that might be a very effective tool. The one thing it would probably be difficult to teach something like that in school though, because like you can intuitively answer the questions, but you haven't really added value to those. Things. Well, as a, as a parent, I would be very hesitant to have schools teaching my kids values. Yeah. I, I actually fear I think, that because what could happen is indoctrination really quick. Like yeah. you need to value but the, the point, group the over the individual. Is to teach like, you oh, how shit. to identify your values. Not, identify values. But you're yes. saying it, it could, it could simply fall into here's your values like well and i think that's what indoctrination is well, that's kind of in, what schools in, do right now right they do tr- and, and that's people have a problem with that in the universities and jordan peterson talks about all the time indoctrination and people think he's a nut because of it but it does come down to ranking and creating value systems like do you value individual or group and a lot of new thought is being promoted that you are a group and you can't speak here because you're this. We have too many white men on this panel. And so it took all their individual identity and grouped it. And that's in that's how the thought... And so it's a scary thing to actually... I value group identity more than individual identity. That's one thing that has interested me recently too is how is that... How is the... It, it's like flat out racism, the discrimination against white men from the far left recently. Like, and they're anti-racist, aren't are they not? Yeah, yeah, but see that that's the problem. Like, you know, I think the way, I think you know, this is what Jordan Peterson talks about the whole postmodernist, like the way of looking at thin and classifying people because they lost this whole class system warfare, so they recreated that uh, grouping in identities because people associate with those more in your race or your gender versus say classes so the whole socialist marxist idea they basically took that and they flipped it into identities that people actually more are passionate about so they say they that was the marxist's idea to regenerate the thing and that's how they embedded that into school in the universities that's what jordan peterson's argument is that th- that's what the postmodernists did so if you really a, think I about think it's it a yeah good argument yeah being as like instead of because everyone wants to appear as if they're like good and kosher and have their needs met and let's say like upper class like that's almost what people want to be seen as so it's harder to depict what class you might be within just by i i think let's put it this way like tiger woods he's black but he's not black he's rich black so he should not be treated the same way. Oh, yeah, you know, he gets persecuted because he is black. That's why the golf world treated him this way. No, he still made it through. He's a freaking hundred millions, whatever, whatever worth. The bottom line is, like when you're talking about the white individuals, like they say, oh, there's racism. I think it's more of a class system. If there's a people are scared of, like, say, a, a black guy walks in and I was like, oh, oh, he might be shady. But if a, some raggedy white dude walks in who's a trailer trash, people would treat him like shit too. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, it's more of a class system that gets persecuted. There's a lot of white, poor white people who get treated like shit. But there's nobody who speaks, like, oh, you're white, so you're privileged. But they're not. They live in trailer trash, and I've seen them like those guys. And I feel bad for them because there's nobody who speaks on their behalf. Mm-hmm. 
And th- those are the all the same people who voted for Trump. Because Because why? Because nobody speaks for them. No one speaks for them. Huh. Well, I feel really, really um, bad about this, this whole thing. <laughs> I feel like basic facts are now uh, opinion. Uh, there is no such thing as truth. That's what's appealing about postmodernism. Like, I think is that's what it says. Like, it's all objective. There is no truth. There is no right. It's all relative. That's a scary place. Uh, where do you go from there? You better, well, going that's, back, you better learn how to argue. That's why I said, you know, I think science may not solve all of your problems, but it's going to give you the foundation to agree on a lot of things because as far as the perceived reality goes i think that's the closest thing that's going to bring you to any foundational objective reality we all can agree on and science give you that foundation there's nothing else that will give you that foundation because there's nothing universal your cultural experiences are limited to your culture i can certainly agree with that actually i'm definitely coming a little bit more your way after i felt yeah actually no that's true that is something that we can share yeah but what do you say to the people that disagree with science the science deniers i got nothing for him yeah i i can't i i i I fail to even uh appreciate it i i can't uh you once you go that far down the rabbit hole um what do you have you're just in in complete relativist land you got no nothing to agree on anything uh science it isn't a is it's not a thing it's it's a way of thinking and, and the way of seeing the world that is designed to remove this ambiguity but and that's the best tool that we have come up with to create a shared reality mm-hmm. a shared space where we can live together science, science has been able to subjective. do that and science continues to grow and like we talked about before like we might have talked about one or two times ago about well-being what behaviors does a human have to exhibit to maximize the feeling of well-being. I think we're going to get closer and closer to that answer. To there being like an absolute. This is what you should do to maximize your well-being. And we talked about it. It was at Ronnie Engineering. We talked about that. We're like, okay, what if I could take your personality, like a Black Mirror episode, mm-hmm. run it in a simulation a million times. You're a 16-year-old kid. It spits out like, this is where you should do. This is how you should live your life. Mm-hmm. This is this is it. This Follow is this plan. Best path for the you. best path for you. I would have a hard time following it, even you know, because I doubt it's going to be what I think, right? But if if science tells me this is the path, you should go sell tractor parts in Blue Earth, Minnesota. I would have been like, no fucking way, right? But I would have a hard time arguing with the science. I was like, well, shit, okay. What that that also leads when we were sitting on your deck that one time. The first time we were talking about like that same thing, whereas we know things that we could be doing and should be doing in order to progress our well-being, but we decide not to still. Oh, yeah. And it's like because of like our immediate feeling or immediate circumstance or perception. That's such a tricky thing, too, because in in our well, you probably have some real life experiences of knowing this, of choosing decisions that were really harmful for you, like continuing to use heroin, really harmful, (laughs) like yeah, tiptoeing along a fence that could literally kill kill you. Yeah. Right. A lot of us do poor decision making throughout the day to have 
you know, eat that or not eat that or exercise or not exercise or things. But if you were to look at life like a series of multiple choice questions and you were just say, just do what's right. Okay. I think that'd be a pretty, uh, I think we'd pass that test. I think that'd be an interesting study to actually have is to take people from different experiences, just take different individuals from around the world essentially, or maybe just confine it to America and do just that and see how the answers vary and use and put answers in the tests that are. Well, what you're doing though, the test wouldn't, would, would show you very little. Cause I, I just, this week I worked with a patient who has got some really stubborn negative feelings. Like she's depressed because she's been invalidated her whole life. And she just does not feel like doing the things she knows she needs to do that would make her feel better. And we've worked on trying to, reduce the intensity of those feelings we've worked on uh, and, and she is working really hard with medications with therapy weekly therapy to try to get to a point where she can use her willpower discipline to do the things to make the choices that she knows are good for her. the problem is she she's got intense feelings to the contrary feelings that actually do not have her best interest in mind and she knows that um so you can't take that test in without really undue nece- undue influence from the way you feel about things. I think she needs mushrooms. Might open up a brain, yeah, to be able to see things in a new way. Why Why do we have... And there's plenty of, of examples like personality disorders where actual people's feelings are promoting behavior that is completely contradictory to their physical well-being and their mental well-being like and and when you when, when you're and the person's experiencing it it they can't see that but you show it like i tell them all the time like okay let's i'm not going to ask you why you did that behavior why you you know ingested that you know razor like you just swallowed a razor okay why and that's a useless question mm-hmm. because if you give me a, an answer to that why i'm not going to believe it you could give it to me i'm like well that's probably not it Actually, let's let's wait. Let's look at the consequences of that behavior, and I'm just going to infer that the reason you did it were that to get that consequence. And then you think, well, shit, that's a really scary thing because there's plenty of times that you'll actually get locked up or locked in a hospital, or you'll lose your kids, or you'll lose your freedom, basically. Mm-hmm. And is that exactly what your feelings were aiming towards? Because we know very little on what's good for us. That's a scary thought. So it's amplified in those patient populations, but it happens to all of us that we have, we have, uh, and we might've talked about this this first day on the deck talking about like the human psyche is like a village. You're the chief of the village, but who are you going to, different actors, who are you going to give voice to and allow to be louder and be the decision maker, right? Like an angel on this shoulder and a devil on this shoulder, but there is everyone in between Mm -hmm. and they're all feeding you information today. There's not just good, bad. There's. Yep, and each one of those characters has their own <laughs> memory and experience that they're using to give themselves a microphone mm-hmm. to you. I don't know how we wrap this up to where we started here. I think you. Well, I th- I think uh, going back to this all came about like when you're talking about the sophists and how they would articulate and um, in any argument and they can take any position and just go round and round in circles because they know how to argue. Well, they so could, I think they would win. yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing. So I think this is where we start, like the uh, the absolutist versus the relativist. 
And I think this is where the conversation came about. I think we had a very good conversation on this topic. Like just uh, going, I mean, we went in different directions, but I think we kind of kept it pretty tight. In yeah, the same I think we did topic. too. Yeah, we, yeah, we certainly did. I, I enjoyed this conversation. Um, that pretty much sums up like what, you know, the, uh, the whole life was for Socrates was like that dealing with these uh, scenarios and people and whatnot. Actually, yeah, that's true. He considered, he, he made an argument about knowing stuff, but then also knowing what he doesn't know. And he or was not, he w- not knowing what he doesn't know. Right. There's, and I think, wasn't it Donald, uh, uh, who was the defense secretary under George Bush? Rumsfeld was there's there's known knowns there's known unknowns and then there's unknown unknowns have you ever heard that yeah people thought that was stupid but that's deep as shit like yeah, I love it, it certainly because you, there's things that you know you don't know and those are that's 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 one level of bad mm-hmm. I don't know uh you know cardiac rhythms I don't know that you show me an EKG I know that I don't know that but the really scary things are that unknown unknowns that you don't know that you don't know it and socrates was poking holes in people's idea of what and how they came to decisions and that was really scary for people and uh so yeah here we're talking about that no basic facts um truths what you think you know you might not know Mm -hmm. and so that is important that might actually help someone open up their mind because it certainly can be like a trench in someone's brain to get them stuck. If you can allow somehow, maybe it's mushrooms, maybe it's a technique to, to admit that the way you think the world works and the way you feel the world works might not be true. Accurate. Right? Yeah. Because truth is flexible. To a degree. I feel like we need a neutralist like Socrates. No, I think, uh, and that's exactly what you're not getting today, whether it's the media, whether it's the social platforms, because they are constantly keeping in that echo chamber, in that confirma- confirmation bias mode, where you are not getting exposure to the, the unknown unknown. That yeah, you're right. yeah. To nuance, exactly. yeah. yeah. To well, if there's, if there's, if they're just showing me what I, what they think I want to see, I'm not seeing things that I don't think I don't want to see. There's <laughs> you know? also like, how, how, that's the, you'll never know the unknowns. So you'll stay in the dark on some topics and you won't even know you're in the dark. And that's exactly the problem with unknown unknowns is they could, they could seriously hurt you. They could influence your life in really impactful ways, but you'd never know it. That's one thing that's also like kind of nerve wracking about just like the news in general is like the amount of like fear it instills and uncertainty all the time. And it's almost news has gotten so clickbaity. It's like they they drive a, a topic for you to come back to it, like to see what comes about from it. And it's usually something bad, you know, uh, I mean, it's the, like the news worked that way forever. Well, except it was like very PG-13 for a long time. Like they will always have these clickbait headlines where they say, do you want to know what happened to this and this and that? Well, stay tuned after the whatever. And then so they kind of started and they said the the sensationalism in the news started with 60 Minutes. Was the Basically, they wanted to make turn news into something. Oh, my God. It's like a story. Like 
kind of keeping you entertained and keeping you on the seat of you, you know, at the edge of your seat. So they said 60 minutes is the pre precursor to a lot of the sensationalism, a lot of this uh, new, you know, uh, uh, like making a story a big event. Really muddies the waters because it changes what's important uh, in a story because it makes you feel certain ways and they can influence the way they make you feel about a thing by playing music or casting a certain light. Uh, before we go, I, I did want to talk one thing because he, I think uh, Mr. West only uh, allowed like 10 minutes to talk about the the trial of Socrates. And they, he it made a thing in there saying like Socrates could have argued his way out of it. He could have walked away literally and lived his life without dying. But he was, he was uh, dedicated to doing what he felt was right no matter what. Um, was he right to do that what what basis was he using to determine what was right and not take because he obviously if what was right was surviving he was wrong that's what that's why the was it like the oracle that said the wisest man in the land is socrates because he knows that i can't remember exactly how it went but it was like that's that. That's the he knows he, what he doesn't know, so isn't he, it? So he was deciding. I think he was deciding that right and wrong is subjective, and there was, I don't know. I guess I don't know the answer to your question. Do you remember that part, Sam? Do you have any thoughts on it? I, I don't have any specific thoughts, but I mean, we don't know the circumstances why he did that. I mean, it could be. I mean, I'm gonna bring like, a very boring reason. What if he's ill? He's sick. Like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm just gonna go out with a bang and. Just go down. I mean, you know, here's the thing. I think a lot of time history is very boring and we make it very entertaining and interesting. So a lot of events that have happened in the past, we really romanticize it. We really put like some cherry on top and all those things to stories. I think things just happen. And I think we really overthink it and overanalyze it. He may have been just working on an agenda. You know what? At this point, I don't give a f. I'm just gonna say what I need to say, right? And but deal with the consequences. Here, here's something to think about. He did what he thought was right. How do you know that? Um, because that's what we that's what we were told by Plato and the other people that were given his story in the Apology. Um, but was he making a statement with that? Because being accused of a crime you didn't commit and either A, having to come up with some bullshit argument out of it or running away from it, doesn't that feel wrong? So I say I never give it two thoughts because to me, I don't believe historians. And even if, you know, people passed him like who wrote the stories, it's like, See that that's what I mean. I, I know you want to speculate. I just don't because to me the the what he did right, I'm not is more important to, to me. Why he did it? No, I'm that's not an asking. Important question. Okay, okay but, don't ask yeah. the question why he did it, but just look at the choice that was in front of him. Yeah, it was a bullshit trial. It was a bullshit crime. Yeah, they, everyone expected him to walk away. How old was he? Seventy, which is pretty long life. And back in those days, it's pretty old at that time. But here's what I'm saying. Okay, it's still a choice. And it feels like the right thing to do would be to, no, I'm not going to go along with this. It's wrong. I think. And so he, he made the choice to say, I'm not going to go along with it. I'm going to uh, make so, you guys 
choose this. The, the way I see and I it, love it, and we're still talking about him today because yeah. of that. But he made it. He made a stance that there is an objective, object, objective right. This is the right thing to do. It's going to cost me my life. And yeah, sure, he's only seven. He's really old, but he. He did so, that, so, and, so, and Brian, that's what I'm yeah. saying. In our lives right now, we don't know. Do we know what's right for us? No. So and would we be able to do what's right even I, if it costs us our lives? I, I can tell you how. I mean, so basically, the way let's just put it this way: he was fearless in, in that moment, and I'll say what made him fearless. I will say it could be anything. Like if you know that you have only one day to live, you will say, you know what? I'm gonna effing. Say what I need to say. Do what I need to do. I mean, it will change your calibration in the way you would operate. So if he was under the assumption that, like, let's say he's dying. Let's say he had a disease and he knows he's not going to live. He's like, you know what? I'm going to last a few months. I'm going to just say what I need to say and read, set the record straight. He could have had his own reasons. I can bet you if you would know you have one day to live, you will do exactly the same thing. And you will you will not chicken out. You will not try to escape with the whatever you're dealing with you will deal with it head on but we're still not getting to the meat of this what's right what's wrong was it was it wrong for him to do that should he have left would have that been right how come how come it feels right the thing that he did that's what I'm trying to figure out. It it feels like eh, that was the right choice. When I can't explain why that was the right choice, he died. It, it seems like a bad choice, but it at the same time, well, that seems like the right choice. I, I think. See, this is where I'm just saying, like they're making the story very interesting. Like it was like a beautiful, like it must have been like a big trial. There are people. I mean, it could be like in a freaking basement. One guy came in. You're doing this, and no, I'm not doing it. Fuck you. You're dying. Take him out and kill him. It could have happened like completely very unsexy way, but they that's why I say the historians glorify, they make it into the big thing. I don't want to speculate something that I know you can because it gives you satisfaction. It doesn't give me any satisfaction. All right. Uh, let me think of it this way. So in your life circumstance right now, you are charged with some phony crime, some bullshit thing, um, and you were given the same choices. What would you do? If I'm 70 years old, no, right, now. <laughs> right now, right now, I'll fight it. I'll try to get my way out of it. Yeah. I'd argue it. Yeah. You could also run away. But again, you could, at that time, you could literally just go to, like, you know, the next Again, the almost, I almost decided to fight my last charge that I just got, but I knew I was guilty and it felt wrong. So I am dealing with the, the consequences of that. So I don't know. I feel like I kind of had that same choice. Even though it wasn't a faulty crime, it was something I knew I was guilty of. Hmm. Yeah, that's tough. That's all I want to think about that. So let's let's just wrap this thing up. All right. First off, I admire your guys' ability to be so well-spoken and thoughtful and, and have such good, like, valuable discourse. Um, but I feel like the more that we keep having these conversations, I'll, I'll catch up. No, I think uh, th these are good conversations to kind of break me away from my day-to-day -day way of thinking. So it's a way, to, nice way to step back and learn from all this interaction. I think this is very thoughtful. Yeah, I appreciate it too. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Squad.
by listener um, logging into my computer right now. So I will just uh, say thanks for listening this long to the conversation and uh, stay tuned. Until next time, which won't be very long. <laughs>